Let's open our Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 1. Our meeting this morning is entitled, Nothing for Jesus. To be anything or to be nothing for Jesus. Matthew chapter 11 records the trial of John the Baptist. He's in prison, and it came to pass when Jesus had made an end of commanding his twelve disciples, he departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. And now when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples, and he said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? And Jesus answered and said, verse 4, unto them, Go and show John again those things which you do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached unto them. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. Let's pray together this morning, shall we? Father, I want to thank you this morning for the opportunity that we have to be here, the blessing that you promised in the gift of your Holy Spirit, and the precious words that you've given to us in the Bible, and the great gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. As we gather to spend time in this devotional session, meditating upon Christ, and seeing him lifted up again and again, we pray that our hearts will be touched and transformed and that we will truly experience that wonderful statement of truth that we will be willing to be anything or nothing, that we may do heart service for the Master. Be with us to this end, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I really like these verses because they describe not only the dejection that we often experience as we follow Christ, the trials that we go through, but they also describe the remedy. They give us the direction and the hope that we need as we face those experiences of darkness and discouragement, when we feel all alone, even the times when we feel abandoned by Jesus. You know John the Baptist was actually thought to be the Messiah at one point. He was exalted to the pinnacle of height, not by himself, but by others. They asked him this question, can you imagine being asked if you are the Messiah? And now he's abandoned in a prison cell, dark, lonely, discouraged, believing possibly that Jesus might come to rescue him, but experiencing exactly the opposite. Have you ever been in such a situation where you've felt, believed, hoped that God would rescue you and yet felt totally abandoned? And so he sends a message during this time of trial to Jesus Christ, as we often do when we pray to God, why, Lord, is this happening to me? And the response that comes back that Jesus sends, tell him to look again at those things that I have done, those things that I am doing, that which I have accomplished, not for him necessarily at this moment, but for the world. I am healing, teaching, and preaching the gospel. And this is, for us, the secret of success. 
to go again and again and again to Jesus, to behold him, to see him, to understand what he's accomplished for the world. Not necessarily for us, but for the entire world. This is our only hope and our great need. This morning we're going to continue on with this focus because our desire is to be anything or nothing for Jesus. John the Baptist experienced this, and we want it also. We're going to look again in the book of Revelation because this is the final word of God to this earth. The revelation of Jesus Christ is, I believe, the fifth gospel of the Bible. It is a summary of the entire Bible. In the book of Revelation, the whole Bible begins and ends. And when you study the book of Revelation, you study everything that God has written. The book of Revelation is profound and difficult and challenging, and yet we are encouraged to understand it. And I believe that we can, if we will look at it as a revelation of Jesus and not just a revelation from Jesus. If you look at the book as a whole, you're going to find that it is almost divided in half. There are 22 chapters. The first 11 chapters focus primarily on the gospel of Jesus Christ, on the plan of salvation. Now, we're just looking at it in an overview. The book of Ephesians does the same thing. Just slip back there with me to the book of Ephesians, and you're going to see this same basic outline, because God, the author of his word, is able to put much more into it than we many times understand. Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3 ends... With this verse, 321, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Now what is unique about this verse is the very last word. Ephesians 321 ends with the word amen. Paul never does that unless he is closing out an epistle. He never uses the word amen unless he is closing out an epistle. Here is a very unique situation. Paul is closing out, if you will, a thought, an idea. But he's not done with the epistle. He still has three more chapters for us to consider. What Paul is doing here in Ephesians is he is dividing, if you will, the book in half. The first three chapters of Ephesians focuses primarily on the gospel of Jesus Christ, what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. And then the second half reveals that gospel in the lives of believers. It shows the very practical application of the gospel. First of all, in Ephesians chapter 4, we see the gospel in church relationships. Then we see the gospel in community relationships. And then we see the gospel worked out in home relationships. You know those verses in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands. And finally we see the gospel in work relationships in the marketplace, if you will. So the first half of Ephesians focuses on the gospel itself. We are missing. It is all Christ and the work he has done for us. As we are saturated by the love of Christ and we take in the full picture of God's love, and this is how Paul closes Ephesians chapter 3, he prays that we would measure the length and the breadth and the height and the depth of the love of God and know it so that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then as he begins chapter 4, he begins to reveal how that gospel is manifest in our lives. The book of Revelation does the same thing. Revelation chapters 1 through 11 
focus primarily on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our hopelessness, our helplessness, and what Jesus has done to remedy that situation. And that's why it is so important for us when we do our revelation seminars, when we do our evangelistic seminars, it is so important for us to begin where God begins. Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. Because God has a book that is outlined perfectly for evangelism in the last days. And this book tells us first and foremost, verse 5 of Revelation 1, that He has loved us and has washed us from our sins in His blood. That is the first truth that people need to know. Amen? And then the next thing they need is to see Jesus. And so in Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, John hears a voice behind him as of a trumpet, and as he turns, he sees Jesus. So the message here is, we need to know the love that God has toward us. We need to know what he has accomplished in sacrifice for our sins, the sins of the world, and we need to keep our focus on Jesus. Don't look to people. Look to Jesus. And then as we do this, Revelation begins to reveal our own condition. And we can be overwhelmed when we look in the mirror and we realize our faults and our imperfections. And sometimes we think, well, you know, I've been a Christian now for X amount of years, 10, 20, 30, and yet I seem to be getting worse and not better. (laughs) Have you ever experienced that? This is because the more we see of Jesus, the clearer we will see our own defects. Things that have before passed our notice will be manifest in our lives. And what's scary about it is, is that when we see these defects that we hadn't seen before, we realize we've had them all along. And we can, want, we can be overwhelmed. We can want to give up on ourselves. And that's okay as long as we don't give up on Jesus. Because Jesus pictures himself in the midst of these seven churches with all their faults, with all their problems, with all their needs, especially the need to overcome. And, of course, that is the bottom line message to the churches, to him that overcomes, to him that overcomes, to him that overcomes. And we realize at some point in our Christian experience, like Abraham and Sarah, that we can't overcome. We can't have this child of promise. We've tried the Hagar experience. We've tried to do our part and let God do his part. We've got to come to the place where we put our full weight of trust on the promises of God. We can't, but he can And that's what we see as we progress into Revelation chapter 5. We see there a roll that is written on the inside and on the outside, sealed up with seven seals. That roll represents the title deed to the earth. It is in the hand of him who sits on the throne. Satan claims this earth is his, but God still holds it as his possession. In that roll is the history of the entire world. You and I and everyone summarized in that history According to Romans chapter 3, all of sin comes short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. John sees this role and he sees that no man in heaven or earth or under the earth is able to open it, to change, to alter our destiny with death. And he begins to weep. That is our experience. We see our faults, we see our defects, we know we can't do it. We cannot overcome. And at times we're overwhelmed with our sinful selves. And then the message comes to John, as it is to come to us. Weep not. Behold the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And as John looks for this majestic being, you know, a lion, the king, 
of the universe. He sees. Revelation chapter 5. He sees in the midst of the throne, verse 6, a lamb as it has been slain. What a glorious picture of the plan of salvation. The king of glory coming down to this earth and dying that death, even the death of the cross. Here we find the gospel. Right here in the book of Revelation, as you will not find it anywhere else in the Bible in this symbolic language. And all of heaven rejoices as the Lamb comes and takes the book, verse 9. And as He does this, everyone in heaven fall down before the Lamb and begin to sing the song of praise and glory to the Lamb, saying, verse 12, with a loud voice. What kind of voice? Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. You find this consistently in the book of Revelation. These praise sessions, these alleluias, these amens, they break up the the monotony of prophecy and symbolism and they call us to praise God for what Jesus Christ has accomplished. And it is in our own experience when we let go of self, when we completely discard our reliance upon our own works, that we will find our hearts praising God day and night for what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. Then we see this picture in Revelation chapter 6 of a white horse. And we identify that horse in Zechariah 10 verse 3. Yes, it is Zechariah 10 verse 3. I went back and checked. Of God's people. In fact, there are four horses, and these horses represent people. People. Four representing the directions of the compass, north, east, south, and west. And this horse, the white horse, specifically representing God's people. Because the rider on the white horse is Christ, according to Revelation chapter 19. And he has a bow. That word is taken from the Greek used five times in Revelation chapter 12 to describe the man-child that was brought forth. That is our weapon. That bow is the weapon that we yield in this battle against sin. It is the message of Jesus Christ coming forth as our conqueror. Jesus Christ coming forth as our Savior. And it says that a crown was given unto them. That's not a diadem. That is a victor's wreath. And they go forth conquering and to conquer. What else can we do when we unite with what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us? When we embrace all that He has done for us, there is no other option but to go forth conquering and to conquer. Our victory is assured in Jesus. It is only as we separate from Jesus that we have defeat and failure. But as we unite with Christ, as we let Him take the reins, we go forth conquering and to conquer. And of course, that word in the Greek is the same as the ones found there in the seven churches to overcome. The same as the one that is found in Revelation chapter 5 that He has prevailed, He has overcome, He has conquered. Everything that we need is found in Jesus. And as we unite with Jesus, we go forth. Not because of our merit, not because of our power, not because of our strength, but because of what He has accomplished for us. We go forth conquering and to conquer. Praise God.
And that's exactly what happens is we come to the end of these four horses and every human being is going to find themselves lumped into one of those horses, whether they are part of God's church, God's people, or those who persecute God's people, or those who compromise the truth, the dark horse, or those who completely turn away from the pale horse, the light and the truth that God has given, and turn to atheism and unbelief. Every person in the world will be part of one of those horses, symbolized by one of those horses. And as that white horse goes forth, it gathers together, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, a great multitude that no man could number of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. You and I are privileged to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ and take it out to the marketplaces, take it out to the world in which we live and move and have our being. And as we do that, there will be multitudes and tribes and nations and peoples who will also embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we lift up Jesus, all will be drawn to Him. And they will rejoice with us around that throne. How many will be there? God is not standing in heaven saying 143,998, 143,999, 144,000. Okay, that's it. You Adventists can stop now. We've got the number. No, indeed not. The 144,000 is a symbolic number. Clearly it is. If you're confused about that, there's a book that's going to be printed soon. God is inclusive. A study on the 144,000 will be available from our ministry God is going to save so many people in the kingdom of heaven that we will not be able to number them all. That's what Revelation 7 verse 9 says. A great multitude that no one could number. And I think there's some significance there. Not that we can't number them, per se, but that we ought not to number them. We are so engrossed with numbers. How many were there? How many were baptized? How many attended? How many, how many, how many? You remember what happened to David when he began to try to number Israel. We ought not to do this. I could tell you stories of people and places and things that are happening that we know nothing of. And those are just the things that I know. What about the things that you know? God is doing a work that none of us know. And what ASI presents here is just a small sample of the work the Holy Spirit is doing on the hearts and the lives of people all over the world who will join this vast multitude that no man can number. Praise God. Praise God. And then we move to Revelation chapter 8. You know, Revelation chapter 8 picks up where we have left off. It again brings us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It focuses again on what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. In verse 2, I saw seven angels and which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. There are two altars represented here in verse 3. There is the altar and the golden altar. The altar, according to the sanctuary symbolism, represented the place where the sacrifices were made. That was the first altar you came to in the the sanctuary. It was in the courtyard. That altar was a symbol of the cross. You find that in Hebrews chapter 13. Let's look there quickly, because the book of Hebrews is actually the key that helps us unlock the symbols of Revelation. There are over 70 references in the book of Revelation to the sanctuary. And the book of Hebrews unlocks the sanctuary symbolism. Helps us to understand it in the context of the plan of salvation. 
Hebrews chapter 13, Paul here is speaking to the Hebrews, to his brethren according to the flesh. The whole book of Hebrews is all about transitioning them from the earthly to the heavenly. The argument in the book of Hebrews about the sanctuary has nothing to do with whether Jesus went to the holy place or the most holy place. It has everything to do with coming from the earthly to the heavenly, the earthly to the heavenly. Paul was never trying to convince us that Jesus was in the holy or the most holy place. He was trying to convince us, the Jews, the literal Jews, that Jesus was in the heavenly and the earthly had fulfilled everything that it was designed to do in pointing to Jesus. And so you find here in verse 10, Paul saying very emphatically, we have an altar which they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. The, the literal earthly tabernacle was now dissolved. And the altar that we have is the one that Jesus gave his life upon. For, those bodies, for the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary, the literal sanctuary, verse 11, by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore, here's the key verse, verse 12, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered without the gate. So he's taking that earthly altar, that, that, that sanctuary altar, and he's applying it to the cross. He's telling us here that Jesus' death on the cross was a fulfillment of all of those lambs that were taken to that earthly altar and sacrificed for the sins of the people. He tells us earlier in chapter 10 of Hebrews that the blood of those sacrifices could never do away with sin, but Jesus' blood does. In fact, he emphasizes that seven times in the book of Hebrews. And so we have here a clear understanding of the symbolism of Revelation chapter 8, verse 3. Here we have a picture of Jesus Christ coming to the altar, the cross, having the golden censer, which symbolizes his work in the most holy place, and then taking that censer and putting in it much incense that he should offer it with all the prayers of the saints on the golden altar, which represents the holy place. In other words, this verse takes in both his holy place ministry that began at his ascension and then his most holy place ministry that began in 1844. All of it is taken in with this verse because this verse is directing us to the heavenly sanctuary and the pre-judgment work of Christ and the investigative judgment work of Christ. The focus of that work is the incense that comes from the altar, the cross. What does this incense, rep incense represent in verse 3 of Revelation 8? Well, our first response would be that that incense represents prayers, the prayers of God's people. But it says the incense is mingled or offered with the prayers of the saints. So in this particular case, the incense cannot represent the prayers because that would just be a duplicate. The prayers are mingled with the prayers. Many times, symbols can have more than one meaning. You go to the Bible, you find the meaning, you put it into the text. If it doesn't fit, you go to the Bible, find another meaning, put it into the text and see if it fits. For example, a day can equal a year. A day can equal 24 hours. A day can equal a thousand years. A day can equal an indefinite period of time like the day of the Lord. It's the same with incense. Incense in Revelation 5 does represent the prayers of the saints. But here it represents something different. According to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2, the incense represents, let's read the verse, Ephesians 5, verse 2, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and has given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. 
Here the incense represents the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. So again, Revelation is directing us to the merits of Jesus. Revelation is directing us to what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. And Revelation is saying that there are saints, saints, who are praying to God. Saints. And as their prayers ascend to heaven, they go up to the throne of God, but not by their lonesome. They are mingled with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And as those prayers of the saints are mingled with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, they ascend up before the Father and are fully acceptable with Him. Have you ever prayed a cold, listless, lifeless, indifferent prayer? Have you ever caught yourself falling asleep during prayer? Have you ever prayed and realized that you, didn't even, you can't even remember what you just said? We need the merits of Jesus. We need the intercession of the Holy Spirit. Are you with me? And as we pray, the saints pray, those prayers mingled with Christ's righteousness bring a result. What kind of result did they bring on the day of Pentecost? Well, they ascend up to God, to the throne. And the smoke of the incense, verse 4, comes with the prayers of the saints and ascends up before God out of the angel's hands. And the angel takes a censer, fills it with fire from the altar, and casts it into the earth. What kind of result did the prayers of God's disciples produce in the day of Pentecost? They were with one accord in one place and they were praying together and as their prayers ascended up, and this is the picture that we have here. Historically, when you look at the trumpets and the history of the trumpets, historically, this verse is describing the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. God's people are praying. Jesus has ascended to heaven. He has begun His mediatorial work there in the holy place. And the prayers of the disciples come up and they're mingled with the sacrifice of Jesus. And then fire. What does fire represent in the Bible? The Holy Spirit. Fire is taken from the altar and cast into the earth. It's all symbolic, but it's very literal in the sense that when Christ's disciples were praying, there was a a mighty rush of wind. And it says that the Holy Spirit came down and rested upon them in cloven tongues of fire. And you know what what happened after they were filled with the Holy Spirit? It says they went forth and they spoke the Word of God with tongues. Isn't that right? With voices. Right here, it says in the verse, it says, And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire off the altar and cast it into the earth, and there were what? Voices. Voices. And thunderings. Do you remember when, when God made His presence known through that early church? Thunder is the voice of God. In fact, God spoke to Saul on the road to Damascus. You remember that. And he became Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. And there were thunders and there were lightnings. What does lightning represent in the Word of God? Anyone know? Lightning represents angels. They are like lightning. Angels made themselves manifest in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit during Pentecost. You remember they delivered Peter from that jail. They directed the disciples to minister in different places. And then it says, 
that there was an earthquake. Do you remember when Peter was in jail and there was a mighty earthquake? All the doors were opened and he was released. The apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit, with the fire of the Holy Spirit, and they shook the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, consistently in the book of Revelation, you're going to find voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake surrounding the throne of God. Where you see a picture of the throne of God, you're going to see these symbols there because they represent the power and the energy that surrounds God's throne. And when we pray in the merits and in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, when we pray not because we're worthy, not because we're righteous, not because we're Seventh-day Adventists and we deserve the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but when we pray recognizing that we are completely bankrupt of righteousness, that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags, that we have nothing to offer God, not even our ASI membership. And we rely completely on the merits of Jesus Christ. The promise is that we will receive, as the disciples did, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The promise is that all heaven will come down to this earth, that there will again be voices and there will be lightnings and there will be thunderings and there will be a great earthquake. That all of that power and energy that surrounds the throne of God will come down to this earth and we will see again what was seen on the day of Pentecost, but more. Because that was the former and we're looking for the latter rain. Are you with me? And so we see at the very beginning of the seven trumpets in preparation for the opening of the seven trumpets, we see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. As we move through the seven trumpets, we have again an outline, a comparison of righteousness by faith versus righteousness by works. Each one of these trumpets represents the rise and fall of a different, of a different ism in history. The first one represents the fall of Judaism. 70 years after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, 70 years after Jesus Christ, excuse me, 40 years, one generation after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, one generation, 70 A.D., after Jesus Christ had left, Jerusalem fell. First, the gospel was preached with power, with an earthquake, with voices, with boldness. Jesus Christ was lifted up. Every opportunity was extended. And then finally, Judaism fell because it had become the very epitome of righteousness by works. Righteousness by obedience to the law. Then you had the rise and fall of pagan Rome in the second trumpet. That great mountain, a mountain in the Bible, also represents a kingdom just like a beast does. This mountain was swallowed up, cast into the sea. The nations, peoples, multitudes and tongues swallowed up the nation of pagan Rome. And those tribes rose up in its place. You see history being repeated. In the destruction of Jerusalem, in the fall of pagan Rome, you see again, I believe, the fall of the new Rome. Those of you who are aware of prophecy and what's happening today, you know who the new Rome is. And you know why or how it is coming down. Losing sovereignty, losing independence, losing its unique position in this world and just becoming another one of the many nations. And then we see the fall, the rise and the fall of Catholicism symbolized in the history of the trumpets. And then we see the rise of Islam in the trumpets numbering five and six. And an incredible, an incredible fulfillment of time prophecy. The 391-year, 15-day prophecy predicted by Josiah Litch two years before it actually took place. 
that converted atheists all over the world and prepared them to receive the 2300-day prophecy. In fact, the 391-year, 15-day prophecy was the forerunner of the 2300-day prophecy. It was the prophecy that convinced the world of the day-for-a-year principle. But like John the Baptist, it has languished, been lost sight of. The forerunner of Christ, lost sight of... And many of us today as Seventh-day Adventists included, we don't even know what this prophecy means. We don't even understand it. If you'd like to understand it, if you'd like to study it, I want to encourage you, go to our website, lbm.org. We have a full set of studies on the seven trumpets, including an understanding of this time prophecy and current information from the U.S. Library of Congress, found there by Pastor Ron Dupree, that authenticates the date, August 11, 1840. You know, it's amazing that God stepped out and gave us this prophecy because this is not just a day for a year prophecy. This is a day for a day prophecy. This is a prophecy that had to be fulfilled not on the 12th of August and not on the 10th of August. It had to be fulfilled on the 11th of August, 1840. No wonder people were ready to embrace the 2300-day prophecy when they saw this being fulfilled. It was the forerunner. And we are to be the forerunner of Jesus Christ. Each one of these trumpets represent an ism. Even Revelation chapter 11, atheism, represents an ism that seeks to pull people away from the vision we have in Revelation chapter 8, verses 2, 3, 4, and 5. Judaism, paganism, Catholicism, Islam, even atheism, all have one thing in common. Righteousness by works. Creature merits. Even atheists will say, well, I'm better than those Christians. At least I'm not a hypocrite. I do good things. I I take care and look after my neighbors. Every human being has a natural inclination to rely upon their works, their own creature merits. That's why there is not a point that needs to be dwelt upon more earnestly, repeated more frequently, or established more firmly in the minds of all as the impossibility a fallen man meriting anything by his own best good works. Salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. Now that can be very discouraging news for those of us who have been doing well, paying our tithe, following the health message, living good moral lives. But bottom line, it is the best news on the planet. Because eventually all of us, no matter what our status is, when we compare ourselves among ourselves are bankrupt of righteousness. You find this clearly revealed in one of the most powerful parables that Jesus gave to his disciples when they asked him in Luke chapter 17 to increase their faith. And we need an increase of faith today, don't we? Lord, the apostles said unto him in in Luke 17 verse 5, increase our faith. In reality, we don't need more faith. We just need the right faith. We could have faith as a grain of mustard seed. The Lord said, if you had faith, verse 6, as a grain of mustard seed, you might say unto this sycamine tree, be thou plucked up by the root and be thou planted in the sea and it would obey you. But, in order to answer your question, let me give you this illustration. But which of you having a servant plowing or feeding cattle will say unto him by and by when he is come from the field... 
go and sit down to meat. And will not rather say unto him, Make ready wherewith I may sup and gird thyself and serve me till I have eaten and drunken, and afterward you shall eat and drink. Get the picture here. Jesus is saying, I'm going to increase your faith. Here's a story. You have a servant. He's been out plowing the field all day long in the, the heat, the Florida heat and humidity. He's been out there for 12 hours. And when he's finished, when he comes in after plowing that field for 12 hours in the, the heat of the day, do you say to him, sit down and I'll serve you? No. You say to him, now go get cleaned up and get the food ready so you can serve me. Pretty hard, isn't it? Then he says, one step further, does he thank that servant because he did those things that were commanded him? No. Not only does that servant work outside for 12 hours in the hot sun and then come in and have to clean up and fix the master his food and serve him his food, but he doesn't even get a thanks for it. Now remember, Jesus is seeking to increase the faith of the disciples, of the apostles. Not even a thanks. So... Likewise, verse 10, when you shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which it was our duty to do. What do you think? Will that increase your faith? When God puts before us everything that we ought to do, keeping the commandments of God, following the health message, tithing, etc., when we accomplish all of that, we are to turn and say, we are what? Unprofitable service. None of that merits our salvation. None of that can accomplish one iota of our salvation. We stand before God in full obedience to all of His commandments, everything He's commanded us to do. We stand before God after we have accomplished that as unprofitable servants. We are lost in full compliance and obedience to all the commandments of God. Our title and our fitness for heaven are found completely in the merits of Jesus Christ. I think the disciples are standing there just astounded. They're thinking, we've never heard such things as this. That our salvation is in Jesus Christ alone? Yes, indeed. And that is the message in the book of Revelation. Revelation... Chapters 1 through 11 tell us over and over again. It's not in Judaism. It's not in paganism. It's not in Catholicism. It's not in Islam. It's not in atheism. It's not in being good and trying to be good. Our salvation is found in the incense, in the righteousness of Jesus. All of those isms are contrasted with the picture that we have in Revelation chapter 8, verses 3, 4, and 5. And as we see that picture and truly embrace that truth, we will be the woman of Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1. Let's look at the picture, shall we? Revelation 12 verse 1, And there appeared a great what? Wonder in heaven. This word, this word wonder, is in a sense indicating that what John is seeing here is incredible. God has accomplished something in Revelation 12, verse 1, that is a wonder to the world. It's a woman, which symbolizes a church, and this woman is clothed with the sun. What does the sun represent? 
According to Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, the Son represents the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This woman is clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Here is a woman, a church, a people who have finally embraced, fully embraced, and are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it says this woman is standing upon something. What is she standing upon? Her feet are upon the moon. The light of the Word of God. Clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ and standing upon the Word of God. Psalm 119.105 says, Thy word is a light to my path and a lamp to my feet. Or a lamp to my path and a light to my feet. It's one or the other. Here is this incredible manifestation of a people produced by the messages of Revelation chapter, chapters 1 through 11 who are clothed with Christ's righteousness, standing firmly on the word of God, the promises of God, standing on the promises, and they have, she has a crown of 12 stars on her head. Number 12 represents God's kingdom. It's God's kingdom number. You know, 12 tribes, 12 apostles. It represents God's organized church, God's organized structure. Here is an organized church, an organized movement, the Seventh-day Adventist church, if you will, who are to be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, standing firmly on the Word of God, the Bible, and the Bible alone, and organized together for service to take the gospel to the world. And it is this picture that we are destined to fulfill. Praise God. This is our destiny. And as we reach this destiny, as we become this woman clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we will, verse 11, overcome him, the accuser, by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony. And we will love not our lives unto the death. We will, verse 17, keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. We will, verse, verses 1 through 5 of Revelation 14, follow the Lamb wherever He goes. We will, Revelation 14, verse 12, keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. We will, Revelation chapter 13 and verse 10, not lead into captivity or kill with the sword. We will, Revelation 15 and verse 2, stand on a sea of glass, singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Don't you want to be part of that destiny? Let me share with you in closing a thought from this morning's devotional, This Day with God, dated August 6. That's what I like about this particular devotional. Every page is to the date. August 6, 1901. This is what God's servant had to say to us. Christ accepts and communes with the most lowly. You remember our opening message Wednesday evening? Blessed are the meek. He does not accept men because of their capabilities of eloquence, but because they seek his face, desiring his help. His spirit moving upon the heart arouses every faculty to vigorous action. In these unpretentious ones, the Lord sees the most precious material which will stand storm and tempest, heat and pressure. God sees not as man sees. There is true honor among those who have the love of God in their hearts. Our object in working for the Master should be that His name may be glorified in the conversion of sinners. Those who labor to gain applause are not approved of God. 
The Lord expects His servants to work from a different motive. There are many who will spend and be spent to win souls to Christ. In obedience to the Great Commission, they will go forth to work for the Master. Under the ministration of angels, ordinary men, ordinary men, and women, and children, that's us, isn't it? Ordinary. Will be moved by the Spirit of God, the fire from the altar, to warn people in the highways and the byways. This is the commission to ASI. Humble men who do not trust in their gifts, but who work in simplicity, trusting all simplicity, trusting always in God, will share in the joy of the Savior, and their persevering prayers will bring souls to the cross. We should say to them, we should say to them, go forth, brethren, do your best humbly and sincerely, and God will work with you. They should be strengthened and encouraged and as fast as possible fitted for labor that success may crown their efforts. They harmonize with unseen heavenly instrumentalities. They are workers together with God and their brethren should bid them Godspeed and pray for them as they labor in Christ's name. No one is authorized to hinder such workers. They should be treated with great respect. No one should speak a disparaging word of them as in the rough places of the earth they sow the gospel seed. Christ will be with these humble workers. The angels of heaven will cooperate with them in their self-sacrificing efforts. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus will move upon hearts. God will work miracles in the conversion of sinners. Men and women will be gathered into church fellowship. God is fulfilling that word today. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the work you're doing in this earth, for the power of your Holy Spirit, and for the picture that you've given us of that work the picture that you've given us of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Father, may this picture be fixed in our minds and hearts, and may we see more of Jesus when we, like John the Baptist, go through those trials. May we, through a revelation of our Master, our Savior, be willing to be anything or nothing, so we may do heart service for the Master. Remove our coldness, our lethargy, our self-seeking. Destroy the clamors of self. And help us to keep our focus on Jesus Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.